we don't have to tell you that it's been another challenging year with lots of tough news and changes and uncertainty. Launching this podcast has been a bright spot for us, and we hope it has been for you too, bringing you a little joy or escape in the way only a really good book can. If you're able, help us continue to bring you these conversations in the year to come. Just visit donate.npr.org to give to your local NPR station today. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Well, it's December, which for my money is a much spookier month than October. Like, October is all about the ha-ha fun ghosts who like to wear sunglasses and have a good time and party. But December is when the real bad and sad ghosts tend to linger and overstay their welcome. For me, at least. A Christmas carol, you know, is a ghost story after all. So let's lean into it. In a bit, we're going to hear an interview with Kevin Brockmeyer, whose book, The Ghost Variations, is a hundred different ghost stories, some funny, some sad, some philosophical, that go beyond your usual ghost fare. But first, the author Louise Erdrich is out with a new book called The Sentence, and it's about a Native American bookstore owner, the ghosts that haunt her store, and the cultural and historical ghosts that have come up these past couple years, from the pandemic to police murdering George Floyd. And as you'll hear Erdrich tell here and now is Robin Young, she's a novelist, and writing was the only way she could deal with so many things haunting her. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Author Louise Erdrich has a new book out. Her last a year ago won the Pulitzer Prize. She's obviously not resting on laurels, but how could she, with so many ancestors seeming to whisper in her ear? She's a member of the Turtle Mountain tribe of Chippewa Indians. Her 2020 book, The Night Watchman, tells of her grandfather's attempts to save that tribe in the 1950s when the government was trying to terminate it. Her new novel, The Sentence, centers on Tuki, a modern-day woman who steals a dead body for a friend who's actually set her up. The body is packed with drugs. Hey, it could happen. After Tookie leaves prison, we land with her in an indigenous people's bookstore in Minneapolis, owned by an author named Louise. Hmm, Louise Erdrich owns a bookstore in Minneapolis. But as we're processing that, our Tookie is off on a wild ride, haunted by a ghost. Then there's the ghostly steam from the hospital. Is that the spirit of dying COVID patients? And George Floyd's ghost hovers over all. This is Minneapolis. The book is called The Sentence. It begins with an intriguing one. While in prison, I received a dictionary. But Louise Erdrich, stealing a body for a friend, how did you come up with that? I have no idea. (laughs) Really. Just came to you? Yes. The first line came. While in prison, I received a dictionary. Everything unspools from that sentence. I always knew I wanted to write a book about a haunted bookstore. And this is the only bookstore I really know about. I wrote that sentence down, and I had to get her to the bookstore because I knew she had to be haunted. Mm. And in prison, one is not allowed to have 
all sorts of other things that distract human beings, you know, um, cell phones and Netflix and anything but books, really. You know, there's movies or some TV, but, you know, mainly people do a lot of reading. And so that became her reason for looking for a bookstore job afterward. You know, things... One sentence contains so much if you have to follow everything in it down to its source, right? Well, and that sentence, as you say, launches the book. Elsewhere in the book, we don't want to give too much away, she has to find the perfect sentence to unlock a mystery. She served a sentence. Um, she serves a sentence. Yeah. Um, but also, not to give too much away, but it happens right in the beginning, too. A sentence may have killed someone. A sentence in a book may have killed someone. Right. So there's all sorts of things having to do with sentences. Well, and all sorts of things haunting. Uh, she is haunted by that body that she took for a friend. She's haunted by a real-life ghost. This is a frequent customer who's kind of a pain in the neck. She's a white customer named Flora, who in life, if I've got this right, was a Native American wannabe. right. Who doesn't want to have their culture embraced, except there's a difference between embracing and this kind of wannabe-ness? I mean, on page 77, you have a list of questions that Tookie gets in the bookstore. Can you direct me to the nearest ayahuasca ritual? How do I register to be an Indian? How much Indian are you? Uh, I want to give my dog an Indian name. Can you tell me one? How do I get an Indian name? A lot of eye-rolling. Right. Well, these were also questions I have been asked throughout my life as a writer, just in book signings. And people are very curious about indigenous people in the United States or all over the world, I'm sure. But I feel that these are not the questions of people who are enemies. These are people who don't understand. And it's very hard to understand because there's so many, there's a 576 at last count federally recognized tribes and we're all so very different so it's a lot to encompass well and as you say not the enemy but some more blissfully ignorant than others i mean in the book there's a character who cheerfully comes in talking about you know she has a cottage on a lake the land belonged at one time to Native Americans, and she talks about the skeletons that her great aunt dug up and won a blue ribbon at a science fair. And here, maybe you know what to do mm. with them. And mm-hmm. this is just an out, you know, it's just a spiritual outrage <laughs> happening in front of Tookie and a friend. And the friend, the co-worker is saying like, yeah, but are you going to give back the land? <laughs> that cuts a little deeper. It does. And there's a huge issue with human remains that are still held by you know, small-town museums, historical societies, private residences, all sorts of things. And, you know, one of the things that is notable about the book is that it's not the white people who are being haunted. It's the Native people who are being haunted by white people. Mm. Mm. So these things are very common. And our numbers as Native people in the United States are so small It's very hard to get a larger conversation going. And then there's there's so many storylines here, but then there's the thread of COVID in Minneapolis, the protests after the George Floyd murder. Um, Mm -hmm. This was 
born of the year. Well, it was, but as I said, I wanted to write this book about a haunted bookstore, and I started it in 2014. I looked back, and it was quite a while ago. I was writing it. I would always start it on All Souls Day when the fabric between the worlds is at its thinnest. So I would come back to that every year and maybe think of a little more, take more notes. Finally, in 2019, I decided I'm going to start on this All Souls Day and I will not quit. I will write it until All Souls Day 2020. Hmm. Well, it took longer than that. I I couldn't write during all of the things that happened. I had no focus. My, my daughter, Palace, took a lot of notes, and she helped me put things into a time frame because I'm not good at that, and I'm not a reporter. I'm not a journalist. So I put things into sequence and allowed my characters to go through the experience of each thing that happened. They're, they're not true to what I experienced. It was the only thing I could do think of to do, because that's what I am. I'm a fiction writer. So, But things were set up from the beginning, because from the beginning I had Tookie being arrested by someone she cares about. That sets up a very complex dynamic by spring 2020. Right. When everyone in the world but from your city is watching George Floyd. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Books are certainly a salvation for Tookie, as she's dealing with COVID and suddenly trying to mail books to people or send books or drop off books to people because the bookstore is Mm -hmm. closed and the pain uh, and the passion in the streets from, you know, after the murder of George Floyd and a ghost. (laughs) A ghost. And a ghost. A ghost, Um, yeah. And you, she talks about books throughout. She's reading Cool for You by Eileen Miles, just thrown into one scene. To a customer who likes the mystery writer Louise Penny, she gushes over Donna Leone. In the back of the book, the totally biased list of Tookie's favorite books. Tookie can't live without you, so those are yours. Tell me what the role books play here. Actually, I tried to make it so perhaps she has some books that I wouldn't have thought about. (laughs) But my my favorite was her ghost managing book list. (laughs) So she has to try and manage the ghost during the pandemic. You know, we're trying to have the safest workspace possible for everyone who was in the bookstore. So we had people working alone because we're tiny. That set up a sense for me of being haunted, just being Mm -hmm. alone Mm -hmm. with all these books containing so many different consciousnesses. It is haunting in itself. So many things became haunting. <laughs> yeah, because in 2020 and 21, you know. Yeah, the, all the voices in the books. They're all there. All the voices. Yes. Well, the ghost managing book list includes The Uninvited Guests by Sadie Jones, The Underground Railroad. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. one of my favorites on it is Devin Hsu's The Hatak Witches. It's a compelling read. I enjoyed the ghost managing book list as I went through it. I read through as much as I could. The other thing that happens in your books is there's a casual uh, use of Native American language. And there are a couple of uh, moments where I thought, oh, I'd love to ask about that. If you don't mind, there was a quote and it referred to NDN. Oh, NDN. That's Billy Ray Belcourt's book, NDN Coping Mechanisms and other, I think it's other notes from the field. Oh, I love that book. You know, you you say it, Indian. So mm-hmm. it's 
And it's a joke. It's an in-joke for people. I read somewhere that Indian, Indian could also stand for not dead native in reference yeah. to the Civil War general who said the only good Indian. Yeah, yeah. It, it was also Teddy Roosevelt and it was also Frank Baum who wrote The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. So it's not just one person. It is amazing, Louise Erdrich, that you and your characters do have such a sense of humor. Well, my characters and I would say most indigenous people, that's the only generalization I can make. The mm-hmm. people are funny. You know, my daughter and I went to Dune the other day, mm-hmm. and the Fremen have been compared to and are the indigenous people of the planet. So we were waiting for some really good jokes, but they didn't come. <laughs> so I'm hoping in the next Dune, and I'm putting it out there, would you please make the Fremen crack a few jokes? <laughs> <laughs> Pulitzer and National Book Award winner Louise Erdrich. Her new novel is The Sentence. You'll just chew on it. Louise, thank you, <laughs> thank thank you so you. much. Yeah. Thank you, Robin. It's just been a pleasure to talk to you. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. A member FDIC. If you listen to enough public radio, you can tell when an interviewer is winding up for a a very serious and deep question. You know, their voice gets all whispery and halting, and there's just enough preamble to the actual question, but not too much. (laughs) And in this next interview with author Kevin Brockmeyer, NPR's Elsa Chang asks a couple of these questions, and it kind of takes a funny turn. No spoilers, but it is a delightful listen about death. I cannot resist a ghost story. I mean, they usually freak me out, but when I hear that someone is about to tell me a ghost story, I can't turn away. And what I expect to hear is something chilling, like an image that won't leave my head as I'm trying to fall asleep, making me want to pull the covers over my head as I lie there alone in the dark. Well, that is not exactly the effect of Kevin Brockmeyer's new compilation of 100 ghost stories. It's called The Ghost Variations, and it offers a very different take on what it means to be haunted. Stories of a woman trying to forget a man, a ghost with a poor sense of direction, and a medium who can communicate with dead and missing animals. Kevin Brockmeyer joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Elsa. I appreciate it. Well, we appreciate having you. So I first do need to ask you about conventional ghosts. I know that's not what your book is about entirely, but I want to start there. I mean, do you believe ghosts actually exist? And by that, I mean spirits of dead people? I would love desperately to have had some kind of encounter that would convince me that the spirits of the dead exist. Uh, (laughs) I haven't. I remain an agnostic, however, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for my life to offer me an experience such as that. Well, what do you think draws people to ghost stories so much? Like, why are ghost stories so irresistible? Well, uh, traditional ghost stories, I think people just like to experience the chill of encountering creatures who are us but not us. 
And uh, part of that feeling, I think, is also embedded in these ghost stories, even though very few of them aim to chill you. Um, many of them seek to present us with creatures who might represent ourselves as we might someday exist. That's so interesting because I did notice that many of these stories in your book don't even contain a ghost in the traditional sense, per se. Like, like the story called His Womanhood. It's about the scientist who realizes he has the mind of a man, but the soul of a woman. That, that's just one example. But many of these stories are more about someone being haunted by an unfulfilled desire or by a memory. So I wanted to ask you, what ultimately is a ghost to you? Well, you're right that some of these stories are very much sideways ghost stories or tangential ghost stories. Um I came across something that Thomas Carlyle said about Samuel Johnson. Uh, and Samuel Johnson spent his life hoping to see a ghost and was disappointed that he never did. <laughs> and what Carlyle suggested is that Samuel Johnson saw human beings all around him, everywhere he turned. And if you think of a ghost as a creature who doesn't belong here, but briefly takes on corporeal form, before vanishing again, then that is very much how you would define a human being. Mm. We appear into being out of non-being for a short time, materially, and then we disappear back into non-being. Mm. Yeah. So I'm curious, do any of these pieces in this compilation of 100 stories, do any of them have a personal backstory for you? Absolutely, they do. Yes. Many of them are about my own preoccupations, inevitably. One is story number 84, which is called A Second True Story. And it is in part about a little boy who finds a sheepdog standing in his front yard and feels an immediate bond with this dog. Uh, but it's a stray. He's not allowed to keep it. He's heartbroken by this. And he has to let it go. And that is, in fact, an actual experience I had when I was about five years old with an actual dog who appeared mm. in the front yard. Mm -hmm. The conceit in the story is that every being on earth possesses a soul, but not his or her own. And that if by chance you meet the creature who possesses the soul that belongs to you, it will be transmitted to you and you'll be offered the gift of an afterlife. In this story, the little boy, who is basically me, possesses the soul of the sheepdog. When the sheepdog goes trotting away, she goes trotting away with the gift of an afterlife. And the boy sets off into his own life, and maybe someday he will meet the person who possesses his soul, and maybe he won't. I love that. Well, I want to ask you, after collecting all of these stories, all these mediations on hauntings and the divide between this world and the next what was it like for you to spend so much time contemplating death? You know, that is not so different from how I already occupy my days. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> there, was, there was an what earlier book. Um, my, my best known earlier book is called The Brief History of the Dead. And much of the story takes place in a realm of the dead, but not yet forgotten. So the idea is that when you die... As long as you're still remembered by somebody who's still alive, you'll linger in this sort of between space of an afterlife. 
And then after you've been forgotten by the living, you'll move on to whatever comes next. And and what is it about death that captures you so powerfully? Well, uh, you know, two things. One is that I'm just something of, I don't even know the word for it, like something graver than a hypochondriac. Um, (laughs) I'm always convinced that I'm just about to die. And I think a lot of my motivation for writing um, emerges from exactly that preoccupation. I'd better get this book finished before I die. Uh, That's often my thought. Um, (laughs) But aside from that, the idea of death as a landscape for fantasy or a sort of playground in which to enact fantasy is one that's also very appealing to me. Well, then, you know, what kind of afterlife do you envision for yourself ultimately? I mean, have you envisioned one? Well, I'm an agnostic again, but I guess what I believe in, what I envision is an infinitude of afterlives. Um, Mm. You know, if if this book contains a hundred different notions about the afterlife, I feel as if that's only beginning to tap the well. Um, However, probably my idea, I would never say that this is the afterlife as I actually imagine it will unfold. But I often think that everybody over the course of eternity will have the opportunity to be everybody else and that someday you will know what it's like to be me because you'll be me. And someday I'll know what it's like to be you because I'll be you. But as for my actual metaphysics, I think that what I actually believe in is the idea of some greater unknown. Hmm. I love that idea. Kevin Brockmeyer's new book is called The Ghost Variations. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for talking with me. And that's it for NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Megan Lim and Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show producers for this week were Emiko Tamagawa, Samantha Balaban, Melissa Gray, Peter O'Dowd, Julia Corcoran, Giselle Grayson, Rebecca Ramirez, Todd Munt, Courtney Dorning, and Elena Burnett. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening, and remember, visit donate.npr.org to support your local NPR station today. And thanks. This message comes from NPR sponsor Acorn TV. Stream stories from around the world, from sinister suspense to charming comedies and clever crime dramas like My Life is Murder, starring Lucy Lawless. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.